Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. We're going to start the service this morning by reading out of John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful day, for allowing your, uh, your followers, your believers to come into this church uh, that we may worship you. Uh, I ask that you would uh, be with us, that we would worship in the way that uh, you've commanded. Uh, here, you describe one way as uh, being true worshipers because we worship you in spirit and in the word. We need to be people of truth. We need to know your knowledge. We need to want and to love your knowledge to know the things of you and what you've done on the cross for us. Uh, I ask that alongside this that uh, we would not have a dead faith, that we would worship you in spirit, that you would uh, be active and penetrating in our lives down to the heart, that you would cause us to uh, want to live these truths, that we would be able to go from this church uh, gaining knowledge and wisdom from what Andrew's going to bring today, that we may use it in our lives throughout the week. Uh, I ask that you would uh, be with us as we fellowship and as we worship and be with us in this service. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Giving is a part of our worship. It's something that we're called to do, that we're commanded to do. It's something that uh, for the believer should be the, the natural reaction, the, the, the action or the response of gratitude toward the Lord. Um, and we also just take time to to focus on some of our missionaries or ministries each week. And and this week, I just want to uh, ask us to pray for Josh Hutchins and uh, for Gospel Life Missions. Uh, He did post today, which I would encourage all of you to find Josh. If you're on Facebook, if you're on social media, find him. Uh, And then also uh, their ministry, Gospel Life Global Missions. Uh, And he's really good about giving uh, updates. And so you can keep in touch. In fact, I just saw this this morning, was reminded of our need to pray for him. Uh, it says that they just um, uh, just organized their their uh, church there. The Gospel Life Baptist Church met for the first time on their new property uh, in the Mupanga area of Zamba. Uh, and it says that they dedicated this, this building uh, or this really structure. When you look at it, it's not much of a building, right? It's a it's a structure, but they dedicate it to the Lord, uh, and they ask us to pray uh, as they begin to make this new place their their home, that they would be able to reach the community in, in that area. Uh, so let's just take a minute to pray for Josh and for this church, Gospel Life Church in Zamba, uh, and just pray for God's blessing on them. Lord, we come to you right now, and uh, we are grateful for Josh and for Stacy Lee and, and their family, their faithfulness, their willingness to go, uh, to take the, the, the message of the gospel uh, to the nations. Lord, they, they have undertaken a great work, uh, and it isn't a work that is without difficulties, without trials. Um, and so I just lift up Josh and Stacy and their family and ask for your hand of blessing to be upon them. I pray that you would bless their work, that it would be 
prosperous, not in the sense of material prosperity, Lord, but prosperous in the sense of, uh, uh, of a spiritual blessing, Lord. Uh, we, we know that we are called to plant and to water, but you give the increase. So I pray that you would give Josh the increase, Lord, of spiritual things. I pray that they would see uh, people in this locality, in this community where this church is, that they would see people come to faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. I pray that you would bless the ministry there, uh, that it would be useful for the building up of the saints, Lord, that they might grow into the head of the church, into Christ, into his image. Uh, I just pray that you would do that. I pray, Lord, as well for uh, their continued work of training pastors and equipping them. Lord, there, there are a lot of small churches. There are a lot of pastors who, who don't have any training at all. Uh, and that's part of the reason Josh has gone there is is to minister to them and to build them up so that they would then be able to uh, disciple others. And we just pray that that work would be effective. Bless him uh, in, in this ministry. Bless us now today. We, we thank you for those who are here and for those who are faithfully continuing to support this work. And uh, we just pray uh, that, that you would pour out your blessings upon them. And it's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we just sang about an unwavering hope, and uh, we're going to be actually looking at uh, that very thing this morning as we get into this passage. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 19, Hebrews ten nineteen, and it says this, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to action. The gospel is good news. It's the good news that Jesus has done everything necessary for us to be forgiven of our sins, brought into genuine fellowship with God, and guaranteed eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven. He's done everything necessary for that. The gospel is good news because it is not an invitation in order to work, in order to earn those things. It is rather an announcement that Jesus has already secured them for those who trust in him. This means that un unlike any other religion in human history, Christianity is not a system of exerting human effort in order to make it back to God or to try to find forgiveness from God, but it is about simply receiving by faith the unbelievably good news that these things have already been accomplished. 
This is the thing that makes Christianity utterly unique. It's just simply an open hand receiving the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. But this does, uh, this does not mean, uh, that Jesus is indifferent about the way that we live our lives. Some people might think that. Well, if we simply receive this good news that we're accepted and, and loved, Does this mean that our efforts to be good are unnecessary? Well, the Bible answers that with a resounding no. God does care how we live. All over the New Testament, there are commands and exhortations to do certain things and not to do other things. But the interesting thing is to notice how those commands are framed. What what is the basis of those commands? And when you look to the New Testament what you find is that the basis of those commands is not do this in order to live, do this in order to earn your way back to God, or do this in order to be forgiven by God. No, it is exact opposite. You are accepted, you are loved, you are forgiven by God, therefore live this way. It's the exact opposite. In fact, when you look at to the New Testament letters, it's, it's interesting just to notice the way that the letters are written. Almost every New Testament letter follows this same pattern, which is the the start of the letter begins with the the theological. It begins with this is what God has done. You know, this is who you are as sinners. This is what God has done on your behalf. Uh, This is the salvation that he's been brought about. You need to receive this. And and then the, the latter half of the letters typically then give some application. Therefore, live this way. Therefore, do these things. But but it's never the opposite. It's never do these things so that you will be accepted. Hebrews is no exception to this pattern. The, the letter of Hebrews follows the same pattern. And in fact, our passage this morning is something of, of a transition. Uh, all the way from chapter 1 through uh, chapter 10, halfway through chapter 10, the emphasis mostly in there uh, is the theological This is what God has done. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has accomplished. This is how it's compared to the old covenant. What what God was doing and saying in the old covenant, this is what Jesus has accomplished in in the new covenant. And and our passage is a bit of a transition. It's a transition from just this shorter section that we've been in starting in chapter 5 through 10, uh, but, but really it's a transition to the more applicational uh, section of the entire letter. We're moving into that practical application. As we look to this passage this morning, it's, it's kind of simple to follow uh, the main structure of this passage. There are two statements that are since statements. In other words, since this is true, since this is true, uh, there are two of those. And then there are three kind of therefore statements. And, and they, are, they are let us. They all begin with, with let us. So you see in, in verse 19, since we have confidence. And in verse 21, since we have a great high priest. And then in verse 22, let us therefore draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. And verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So, so here, even in this small passage, uh, we, we kind of find that balance. This is true. This is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And since this is true, since this is true, therefore do this, do this, and do this. Do you see the the structure there? 
And, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Those first two statements we'll, we'll talk about briefly, but we, really there, he's just kind of rehearsing what, what he's already said. It's sort of a reiteration of the gospel truths. And so there's two gospel truths in, in those verses that we, we've really labored through in the weeks prior going through these passages. So I'm not going to spend too much time on them, but I do want to point them out. The first gospel truth in that sense statement is that we have unfettered access to God's presence through Jesus' sacrifice. That's in, in, in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. So to summarize that, if we were just trying to give a brief brief synopsis of that, the, the gospel truth that that is teaching is that you and I, those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who have faith in Christ, we have unfettered access to God's presence through Jesus Christ. He speaks here of entering the holy place, and we've talked about that. Entering the holy place is just a way, based on the Old Testament teaching, it's a way of describing us entering into the presence of God. And that is significant because as we've seen over and over again, our sin has brought a separation. Our sin is a barrier. Uh, Prior to Christ, there is no unfettered access to the Lord because we're sinners. And when you look to the Old Testament, we, we understand this sin immediately in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden. They go out of God's presence because of sin. You can look all over the New Testament. We see in the days of Noah, God brings judgment on people, sort of even even taking them out of this world because of their sin. It, it, it resulted as well in the people of Israel being expelled from the land. God sent uh, other nations in to take them captive and send them out of the land. And the idea behind that is, I'm holy, my temple is here, you're rebelling and sinning against me and persisting in this, and so I'm going to expel you out of this land. You see, that separation is all over. And of course, we've seen that that separation was built in to the old covenant system. It had the temple, but there was a holy place, and then there was the Holy of Holies. And and this was pictured as the place of God's presence. And there was a curtain up there. There was a a veil that that said to everybody, you are not welcome to enter in here. Only the priest, the high priest, could go in to the holy place of God. Only he could go and have access to God. And he only did that, the book of Hebrews tells us, once a year. And when he did that, he, he went in with great trepidation and he went in offering sacrifices to God because he understood, I'm a sinner, I'm, un, I'm unholy, I'm unworthy of entering into the presence of God. But what this passage reminds us and what we've been seeing over and over again is that Jesus has made a way for us to God. Through the Gospel, Jesus has secured for us access to God. We, we see it here. It, it says that he's, uh, we, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. 
It's, it's a new way. The, the old covenant system, there, there was one way and it was only for the priest and it was only through sacrifices and it, and it was limited. But, but in the new covenant, there's this new way and you and I, all of us are like priests. All of us are able to go into the presence of God. It's a, a living way. That is to say, it's active. It's alive right now. It's there for, for the taking. It's available. It says through the curtain of His flesh. Well, you remember what I've just described in the, in the old covenant in the temple. There was this curtain separating uh, the, the holy place so that people understood they, they are not to go behind the curtain. You're not to allow, allowed to enter into God's presence. That, that way, there was a way into God's presence, but it was closed off. Now, this way has been made open. We go in through the curtain of His flesh, which is just simply a reference to the death of Christ. He, he sacrificed his flesh. He gave his body to die for you and for me so that we can enter into the presence of God. That's the way we go into God's presence, but we do it through Jesus Christ. See, by, by dying to pay the price or to bear the penalty for our sins, Jesus removed the source of our broken fellowship. You, you see, there were things that were hindering us from entering into God. It was, it was our sin. But Jesus paid for our sin. If you want to think of it in the sense of being dirty, uh, and I've used this illustration before, but if someone comes in and you're just filthy dirty and you stink and you got mud on you, people, people are, uh, that's offensive to people. Like, stay away. I don't, I don't want to get tainted by, by all of your dirtiness, right? And, and in a sense, in a spiritual sense, that's the way that our sin is to God. But the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us. He's purified us so that now we are clean and we're able to go into the presence of God. And notice here, it isn't, it isn't just sort of like, well, maybe you could come in, I guess. No, no, he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. And in other places, he speaks of going boldly to the throne of grace. You and I are, are enabled because of Christ to go with, with confidence. God is not begrudging us this ability. Well, I, I guess I'll let them in. Have you ever been the guest of someone who you could tell really didn't want you there? Like, well, yeah, come on, come on in. I think we've probably all experienced that before. We, it's just awkward. It's, it's uncomfortable. Like, I'm here. But, but I can tell they really don't want me to be here. But that's not the way it is with God. The, the fellowship that we have with God is one in which we have confidence. It, it's a totally different experience going in and being with someone who's like that as opposed to going in with someone who loves you dearly and wants you there. Maybe a very close family member. You just know I, there, there's, there's no hang up in my mind. This person definitely wants me here. They're, they're delighted that I've come to visit them. They're excited that I'm here. They're not begrudging anything about this scenario. And that's the way it is with God. Though we're, though we're sinners and our sin had re restricted us from being able to go in the presence of God, now because of Jesus Christ, we're able to go in with confidence and have unfettered access to God. The second gospel truth is this, that Jesus stands as our mediator and you see this, this is the second since statement in verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. The, the priest, again, I'm just reiterating this because we've already talked about this, but the priest is the one who did what was necessary to secure God's forgiveness 
and favor. The priest in the Old Covenant offered sacrifices and prayers to God so that God would forgive the people of their sin and then pour out His blessings upon them. That that was the picture of what's going on in, in the Old Testament. But we understand the Old Testament system was merely symbolic. Uh, God poured out His blessings and extended forgiveness not because what the high priest act, did actually had any effectiveness, but but it was a gracious uh, condescension on the part of God to do that. But now through Jesus Christ, he's the great high priest who has actually secured God's forgiveness for us. And, and he has actually secured God's blessing on our behalf. Uh, it, it is actually completed and, and done. And now Jesus stands as our high priest. This is the second gospel truth that, that we see here. So because Jesus is forever our high priest, we will never fall out of God's favor. We will never come to a place where God's forgiveness will be revoked or or where God will refuse to bless us. You see, under the old covenant, it was always sort of questionable uh, whether they were going to have God's favor, whether they were going to have God's blessing. It was kind of up in the air. But when it comes to Christ and what He has actually secured, if you're in Christ, if you're believing in Christ, that is secure. It's a sure and steady anchor for the soul that we just sang about. You can have absolute certainty of it. Well, because of these gospel realities, then there are, there are three commands that are given. The first one is this, let us draw near. You see it in verse 22. This is the first lettuce statement. I thought about just calling this the lettuce sermon. Uh, Not let us, but let us. So verse 23, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So so do you see this? This is true. This is what God has done in Christ Jesus. That's his work. He's done it. It's a declaration. It's not an invitation for you to work. In order to do this, it's what he has accomplished. But because he has accomplished that, now let us do this. And the first thing is, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Since Christ has won this amazing benefit, you ought to make full use of it. Christ has secured for you the ability to come into the presence of God and to have fellowship with the Lord of Lords and with the King of Kings, with the Creator of the universe. He has He has secured that on your behalf. And since He has secured that for you, since He's accomplished it for you, you, you ought to make full use of it. Draw near to God then. Draw near to the Lord. Don't, don't stay away. You've been granted access, so go to the Lord. Draw near to Him. By all means, use it. Don't don't stay away. The door's been opened, so go through it. Think about God's presence. There's a couple things when we talk about drawing near to God and and entering into His presence. One of the things that we need to understand that that in God's presence, this is the source of our joy. That's why we should draw near. Because God's presence is the source of our joy. Do you understand that you were created to be in fellowship with God? That's the thing for which your heart longs. Fellowship with God, pres- the, having the presence of God with you it is the reality that defines us. It gives meaning and purpose to our life. 
It is the goal of our existence. Fellowship with God is the source of true life and true joy. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, so we shouldn't be surprised when we look at the world and we, we see people uh, who, who can't seem to find peace and, and can't seem to, to have joy. My wife and I have been watching this Michael Jordan documentary. Uh, perhaps you all have seen it. It's, it's interesting. It's taken me back because I was a child and I, I remember watching Jordan and seeing that, but I didn't know all of the details. I didn't know the backstory. It's, it's super interesting, but you remember at one point he retires. They've just won three straight championships, right? And he retires and he goes and plays baseball. And I, I just remember as a kid thinking like, what in the world is he doing, right? But as this documentary unfolds, of course, his dad ha- had passed away. Uh, and, and, and then there was just this other part of him which he understood that this was kind of bigger than him. It was in, in one sense overwhelming to him, just the constant pressure, the constant people. But, but then it was also kind of empty. He, he was so driven and he worked so hard, but then you just kind of get to this point and, and, and you're kind of like, this is it. And, and, and I think that's what was going on there. And, and that's true for a lot of people. I, I, there are other people, actors and singers and business tycoons and, and other sports stars who, who have had sort of the, the same thing. They, they go into life and they chase their dreams. And, and, and for some people, they're actually able to accomplish everything they've ever wanted to accomplish. Like, like Michael Jordan. The problem is they do all of that. They accomplish everything. And what do they realize? It's, it's empty. They, they do all that and there's no peace. There's no joy. I've worked hard and, and I would think that, that, that life would reward me. I think I would have peace and, and joy in my life, but there's an emptiness here. And, and the reality is that the problem for people like that is they don't understand is, is that joy, the source of our joy as human beings comes from being in fellowship with God. And so you can actually not accomplish very much in this life. You can actually have not that much money and not fame. And you can have peace and joy. Or on the other side, you can have all of those things. But if you don't know the Lord, you don't have peace and you don't have joy. And, and so we shouldn't be surprised when we see people in the world who, who don't have any joy. But, but for the Christian, I think that's a foolish state for us to be in. Christians, we, we have access into the presence of God. We have unbroken fellowship with our Creator. And so we ought to draw near. We ought to draw near to Him. God's presence is also not not only the source of joy, but it's also the source of blessing. Not only do we have the delight of fellowship with our God, but we've also been granted access into His blessing. You see, if the King invites you into His presence... This this means that you have his favor, that, that you kind of have his ear. You're able to bring your petitions to him. And so it is with the Lord when it when it says and invites us to draw near to him. This is one of the things it means draw near in the sense of experiencing fellowship, but also draw near in, in the sense that we're able to bring our petitions before him. In fact, we see this very idea in chapter 416. We've we've already looked at this in the past, but it says this. Let us then with confidence draw near. That same terminology, drawing near with confidence. But in that passage, it says to the throne of grace. 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You see, this is one of the wonderful realities about being able to draw near to God is that we draw near to His throne of grace. So since you have this access, make use of it. Draw near to Him. Draw near to Him not only in joyous fellowship, but also in petition. It it doesn't make sense for us, right? After Christ has accomplished all of this, does it make sense for us then to stay away from the Lord? To, To kind of keep our distance? To not be in regular prayer? To not regularly be fellowshipping with Him in His Word, not, not be fellowshipping with Him through, through fellowshipping with His people in, in the body of Christ? Why, why would we have this wonderful thing handed to us and then we just treat it as a matter of indifference? Well, yeah, I have unfettered access to God's presence, but I just don't have time to pray. I just, I just don't have time for that. That's, that's insane. Let us draw near to the Lord. You know, I think sometimes our struggle with, with the distance that we experience with the Lord is because we wrongly uh, think of our, our sin uh, as keeping us from God. You see, it seems natural to us when maybe we've committed sin, maybe we haven't been living exactly like we know we ought to be, or, or maybe sometimes Satan is good at bringing up past sins and and just reminding of the, us of those things. And so with all of that in our mind, then we just think to ourselves, yeah, better for me not to draw near to God. Well, I probably shouldn't be praying right now. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I don't think I'm going to go to church because I've just been kind of distant from the Lord. I haven't really been living the way that I ought to, to live. But, but there, there, there's, that's not the way that we ought to think. Notice here the freedom that the gospel creates. It says that we are to draw near and it says with a true heart in full assurance. A true heart in full assurance. In other words, a true heart means a sincere heart. It's, it's not mixed. And, and that could mean like we need to have a heart that's truly devoted to the Lord, not mixed, not devoted to anything else. That's what it means some places. But, but I think when it says here that we are to draw near to the Lord with a true heart, I think in this passage, it's, it's meaning not mixed with any doubts. We don't draw near to the Lord thinking, I don't think I should be here. I, I don't think I should be praying now. I, I'm going to ask God for this and I'm going to pray to God for his blessing in this area. But, but I know I haven't been living as I ought to over here. So, so I've got doubt whether or not I should even be praying to God. No, no. Come to him with a true heart, undivided, recognizing God wants me here. He wants me to draw near to Him. He wants me to pray to Him. He, he wants to be close to me even though I am a sinner. A true heart with, with full assurance of faith. I, I'm absolutely confident that I am where I'm supposed to be when I draw near to the Lord. And how does the Gospel create this reality? Well, it says that it washes us clean from a guilty conscience. You see, it washes our sins away. The thing that kind of hinders us, that keeps us away from the Lord, is, is our conscience just reminding us, hey, yeah, bud, you're, you're going to pray to God really right now? You know, just think about what you've been doing. Think, think about the thoughts that you just had in your heart, and now you're going to pray to God. And so our conscience, and then Satan comes along and, 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 and kind of uh, accuses us of that as well. Uh, but now in Christ, our sins have been washed away. Do you understand the freedom of that? We can admit, yes, I'm a sinner, and yet my sins have been completely washed away. 
There's no sense of trepidation. There's nothing hindering me on my worst day from drawing near to God. You can scream at your kids. You can say words that you shouldn't have said. You can have thoughts that are impure. And you need to fight against all of those things. We're going to talk about that. Like You need to work on that, right? You need to be repenting of that. But even on those days, you can draw near to God and he wants you there. And it's a wonderful, wonderful blessing. So let us draw near. Secondly, let us hold fast the confession of our, our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. To hold fast, this means don't let it go. Don't, don't let it slip away. Don't lose it by, by neglecting to hold on. And he says to hold fast without wavering. Without wavering. This wavering means you know, without change without sort of veering off in, in another direction. Uh, the, the word really just means literally to decline. And, and sometimes our faith declines, doesn't it? But, but he says here, hold fast to the confession of your hope without declining, without letting it slip away, without sort of being unmoved, not drifting away. The confession of our hope is just what we've been talking about, these gospel realities. We've confessed that we believe that. We, we confessed when we're, when we're saved, we confess that Jesus, yes, He died. Yes, He washed away my sins. Yes, He's, he's brought about forgiveness and reconciliation between me and, and God. And so we've confessed that. And now we're called uh, to continue to confess it. To, to hold on to that confession. You see, salvation is not just about a, a, a kind of a one-time confession, as so many people seem to think. We see this in, in the book of Hebrews, right? This is, a, this is a theme, the idea of persevering faith. This is a reminder that, that faith is not a one-time past event. It's an ongoing living reality. It's not about, you know, when you say, are you a Christian, do you have faith in, in Christ? It's not about, did you at one time profess faith? It's about right now, do you have a living faith that is currently resting and trusting in Christ? One of the central themes and the purpose of this letter is to call believers to persevere in the faith. True faith is, is a faith that continues to believe and continues to hold on to the Lord. Those who profess faith in Christ but don't continue in that profession don't have salvation. See, that's, that's not a genuine profession. It's not genuine faith because genuine faith is alive and it continues. And so if it doesn't continue, it wasn't living real faith. And so the danger here of, of holding fast or the call for us to hold fast, the, the danger is uh, presented is, is one of a slow process. It's to let something slip or, or to let something drift, to let something decline. You see, when, when, when people uh, fall away from the Lord, uh, it, it's sort of an imperceptible process. In, in another place in the book of Hebrews, it talks about neglecting. Don't, don't neglect such a great salvation. We all know how neglect works, right? When you neglect to care for your home, so you neglect to care for your roof, it doesn't just fall in all of the sudden, right? It's a process. And so there's some, some uh, shingles that come off and you don't, you don't take care of that. And so water begins to come in and, 
there's some leakage that happens and then maybe your gutters are falling over and you don't take care of them. They're all clogged up. But but over time, it takes a long process. Finally, the roof will decay and fall in. But it doesn't happen just instantaneously. And so it is with with our faith. This this idea of uh, of neglect or sort of loosening your grip. A, A person doesn't typically lose their faith all of the sudden in a single event. People begin to loosen their grip a little bit, right? It's so easy for Christians to begin holding their confidence a little, little less, a little more loosely. You go through a trial or you face some difficult temptation. You, see, you hear someone speak who causes you to doubt what you believe a little bit. You see the unbelief of other people, everyone around you at work and family members. And then you just grow weary. You're, you're, you're getting tired. And a little bit at a time, you're loosening your grip. You had this hope. At one point, you were clinging to it, right? You were holding tight. Thank the Lord for Christ and the gospel and salvation. It's wonderful. But, but over time, you you begin to let it slip away a little bit at a time, right? And that's, that's the analogy here. He's saying, don't do that. Hold fast. Hold, hold fast to this hope that, that you've had. And so there's an active participation that's required. In the past, I've, I've laid out what I call the blueprint sort of for, for falling away. We've talked about this a couple different times, but I, I think it's good and I think it's accurate to what I've seen, how it just begins to, to, to start with apathy, right? We just don't care quite as much. We're, we're not as serious. We're not as committed as we once were. And then apathy leads to absence where we just start to withdraw from church life, withdraw from uh, reading the Word, withdraw from, from prayer, and then absence leads to anger. Ne- next thing you know, you're kind of, you, you find some reason. You can kind of sense that you've drifted away from the Lord a bit. A- instead of repenting and coming back and re-engaging, you kind of find a reason for, to justify that drift. Well, this person said this, or somebody didn't think of that, and, and so that just adds another layer of it, and then comes acclimation, where you just get accustomed to where you're at. You've, you've drifted away, you're away from the Lord, and at first it felt weird, but, but now you just get comfortable in this new life away from the Lord. And so we need to be careful. We need to instead hold fast. Christian, it's, it's so important for you to recognize this. Your bent, your tendency is not to just cling to Christ. Your tendency, as we sang earlier, we sang that song, right? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's our tendency. All of us. It's my tendency. It's your tendency. If we're not active, if we're not, if we're not recognizing our need to hold fast to the Lord, we begin to wander off. We begin to drift away. We begin to neglect. That's just the way that life is. That's the way that our faith is. And so he warns us here to hold fast. And the reason we ought to hold fast is because the one who promised is faithful. Do do you see that in in our passage? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, without drifting or declining, for He who promised is faithful. You see, part of the reason we begin to drift away is because we doubt the the truthfulness of God. We, We begin to doubt His faithfulness. This is what Satan always does all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Has God really said this? Will, will God really do that? Do you really have eternal life? Is there really even an afterlife? 
Is the Bible really God's Word? You you see, Satan begins to sow doubt and to call into question God and His faithfulness. But this is a call. Hold fast because the Lord is faithful. The One who has promised these things is faithful. And then thirdly, this morning, not only are, are we to hold fast, but then we're to consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of peering. This final command, the other two are sort of individual, but but this final command focuses on our community responsibility, our responsibility to each other. It has an other-centeredness you see, the, the Christian faith is not individualistic. I, I hate to break it to you. It's not just about you and, and how you're doing. That's the way many of us live our Christian life. It's just about me and that's my only concern. No, no, no. You, you have a responsibility to others and others have a responsibility to you. The goal here is, is to incite one another to holiness. And I'm using that word. Our, our translation says to stir up, to stir up to love and good words, good, good works. The, the, the word really has the idea of inciting. So, so your presence, your demeanor, your attitude, your words help to create a response in, in other people. We can use that in, in a negative way, right? Somebody can incite a riot. What does that mean? Well, they, they come in and their presence and their demeanor and their words gets people stirred up so that they're ready to riot, right? Or, or you can, uh, you know, my wife kind of blames me sometimes for inciting the children. They're, they're getting rowdy because you're going in there and you're running with them and wrestling with them and they, they need to calm down. You're, you're inciting them. You're getting them all stirred up, right? Your, your presence is doing that. Your words and your actions and your attitudes. So, so this is what we're commanded to do here. We're, we have an obligation to each other as, as members of this body of Christ to stir each other up, to incite each other, but not in a bad way, not the way that we sometimes incite each other. We are to incite each other or stir each other up to love and good word, works. It's used here in, in a positive sense. So our, our actions, our words, our attitudes should bring out the best in others. Being around us should incite them to do the kinds of things that the Lord would have them to do. People should want to be more prayerful because they've been with us. Does that, does that happen with you? When, when people are around you, people think, man, I, yeah, I need to be more like Him. I, I need to be more prayerful. Women, other ladies should want to love their husbands better after being with you. Men, other guys should want to be more a more godly husband and father when they're around you, right? Man, th- that so often isn't the case, right? When we get together with our with our buddies, right? Oftentimes we want to talk about our wives, and and we're really incited not to love them as much. But within the body of Christ, we ought to be cultivating a sort of environment where where when the men gather together, they walk away thinking. I need to be more selfless with my wife. I need to be more considerate of her needs. I need to better care for her and wives in in the same way. People should come away from us with a desire to be more generous, 
to be more faithful, to be more loving, to be more forgiving? Do, do people walk away from you and conversations with you thinking, yeah, I should just forgive that guy? Or do they walk away thinking, yeah, that he, he agreed with me. I should just punch that guy in the nose, right? What, what kind of effect do we have on people? People should want to be more diligent in reading their Bible, more inclined to fast and pray, more submissive to leaders, more faithful in their marriage, more committed to purity, more willing to share their faith, more determined to hold fast to Christ, more willing to endure persecution, more committed to serve others, more humble, more hungering for prayer and time with the Lord. That's the kind of environment we hope to see. That's the kind of community that, that all of us should help to be, uh, be helping to cultivate one another. We ought to be stirring one another up, inciting one another to love and good works. You might think that doesn't sound very realistic. That doesn't sound like something that, that, that could really be a possibility. But notice what the command says here. The command is actually that we consider how to stir one another up. Now, the idea is that we really would incite or stir one another up. But, but the first command here is consider this. Give thought to it. Think about it, right? And, and we need to do that. Uh, we, we need to give thought to how can I interact with this brother or sister in such a way that when they leave me, they want to be more faithful with the Lord. Because there's a way that seems natural to all of us, a way that we just relate with each other that's common. It's the way that guys relate to each other in the factories. It's the way that, that children relate to each other in the schools. And, and, and it doesn't edify. It doesn't build up. It doesn't incite people to want to be more faithful to the Lord. But in the church, in our relationships with each other, we ought to be considering. Let me think about this. Let me, let me give thought to my words. What could I share with this brother? What, what encouragement could I give to this sister that would lead her to want to be more faithful to the Lord? So we ought to consider this. It means that we don't just carelessly engage in conversation. We have an aim. We have a goal. We have a, a purpose. We're to think about the things that would encourage others to love the Lord more. We are to be cautious to guard our words so that we don't say anything that would lead others to sin. Someone struggling with anger toward another person. Do you incite that anger? Do you just feed into that anger? Or, or do you say something that, that might help them think more about forgiveness and love? Right? That, that's the kinds of things that we should be thinking. There, there's someone who wants to come and, 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 and join in some gossip. Do we just join in with that? Do we, do we incite that sin? Do we stir up that sin? Or, or, or are we someone who helps redirect that conversation in a way that brings glory to God? Now, some of you may think, well, that sounds like hypocrisy. And it may feel like that to you. You know, you're yelling at your wife and then you come and you try to encourage somebody to be more faithful. You know, in our culture, people really value being authentic. Right. Well, we just got to be real. We got to be who we are. And, and in a sense, I would agree if, if being real means sharing and being open with your struggles, then that's great. You, you are to be real in that sense. But if being real just simply means flaunting your sin or not being careful with your action, just kind of doing what comes naturally to you, you should not be real in that sense. You understand the Bible teaches that that we as Christians, we, we've got a sinful nature that still resides within us. And that's what really a lot of times seems natural to us. 
And so if we're just thinking, well, I just got to be authentic and be real, that a lot of times is just code for, well, I'm going to sin because that's what I want to do. And, and not doing that doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel real. It even feels sometimes a little hypocritical because I, I'm trying to act and speak in ways that, that there's this other part of me that doesn't want to do that. And so I don't feel authentic. But listen, that's just sanctification, right? The, the Bible says that you're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You're to, you're to die to yourself. And so there are times when it doesn't seem like, like that does seem what I want to do, but I need to put it to death. I, I kind of want to just join in this gossip right now. That's, that's kind of what seems natural to me, but, but that's not what I need to do. And so I'm going to consider, I'm going to give thought to my actions and my words in this moment. And instead of doing what kind of seems natural, I'm going to try to redirect that conversation in a God glorifying way. We are to stir up one another's one another to love and good works. And he says here, we we see the means of doing that, uh, the means of uh, of bringing this about, and that is meeting together for mutual encouragement. So we are to consider how to stir one up one another up to love and good works, and then not neglecting verse twenty five to meet together as the habit of some. Uh, as is the habit of some. Why is that tacked on there? Well, if I'm going to incite others, if I'm going to stir them up to love and good works, if I'm going to encourage them in the way of the Lord, I've got to meet together with them. Uh, personal presence is the only way that, that, that that happens. The point is simple. You can't incite others in this way without your personal presence. You must be with others to fulfill this command. So if you're going to stir one another up to love and good works, you can't get in the habit of not meeting together. You've got to be meeting together. What this means, I think, is that church gathering is an essential part of the Christian life. It's not just essential merely because God commands it, although that would be enough, but but there's a functionality to it. It's essential because it's necessary for the maintenance of our faith. You see, I need to be stirred up. We, we've just said, my tendency is to loosen my grip. My tendency is to neglect. My tendency is to drift away from the Lord. I need to be stirred up to love and good works, and you need to do that. I'm not the only one that does that. That's not just the work of the pastor. That's the work of all of us toward one another. Stir up to love and good works. And so we need to be meeting together. We, we need each other. The Christian life is meant to live in community. If we are to hold fast, and if we are to draw near to the Lord, we need each other to encourage uh, one another. Left to ourselves, we will neglect our faith. We will loosen our grip. We will begin to decline. We need each other. So one thing, just a matter of application here, I think for those who are providentially hindered during this time because of the virus, I just think people in that that situation, and perhaps there are some watching today, I think you need to understand there's a real danger that you're in. And we understand providential hindrances, and we know everybody's got to use wisdom and discretion about how they how they interact and the choices that they make during this time. But but I just think there's needs to be a recognition that that you are in a dangerous place if you are away from 
regular, active involvement in the life of the church because our tendency is to drift away from the Lord. Our our tendency is to loosen our grip. And one of the God-ordained means to help us is is the life in the body of Christ. It is this fellowship in which we are stirring each other up. So, I think just special care needs to be taken in, in this season to strengthen your faith. We are also, it says, to be encouraging one another. See, one of the the purposes of meeting together is encouraging one another. We we get to draw near to God and and hold fast to our confession. We're to encourage each other to do that. And what this means is is that church gatherings are not just about you. You you see, do do you understand that it's not just about you? It's not just about what you get out of it. It's not just about whether you feel like going or, or, or whether you think it'll be beneficial personally. You see, that's a consumeristic view that we have. Like, I, I think, well, Lowe's has some products. And if I, if I want what Lowe's has personally, if I think they, they have something that I want, I'll go. And, and if they give me the things that I want and they do it with good customer service in the way that I like, well, then I'll go back to Lowe's in the future if I, if I feel like it, if I feel like I need something else from them. And so many people treat the church that way. The, the church has this product, and, and I'll go sometimes and when I need to get that product, when I personally feel like I need that, then I'll go and I'll, I'll consume that product, uh, and then I'll just kind of go on my way. But that's not the way church life is supposed to be. We're, we're to encourage one another. You're here not just for yourself. You're here for me. You're here for the other brothers and sisters in Christ because we are to encourage one another and stir one another up. Well, and we see finally as we just conclude this sort of the rationale that kind of lends a greater importance to all of this. We're to do this all the more, it says in verse 25, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, the day of the Lord is drawing near. And we need to live with that reality. And, and, and we've just seen we, we must hold fast. We must not neglect our faith. We must not drift away from the Lord. We need to encourage each other. We need to stir each other up to continue to persevere in the faith, especially because Jesus is going to return soon. And we need to be prepared for that. Are you ready for that this morning? Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray. Uh, And thank you for these gospel realities. We thank you that we have the ability to draw near. Uh, We thank you that we have your son, Jesus Christ, acting as our great high priest. We pray then, Lord, that you would help us to hold fast to our faith, that, that you would encourage us through your Holy Spirit to draw near to you, and that you would help us as a body of Christ to stir each other up to love and good works. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to persevere in our faith. And we pray that that this body of Christ, that this church, this community here uh, would be a faithful instrument in your hands to encourage many people uh, to persevere in their faith. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.